0: Welcome to The Real Photo Show, sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. My guest today is Rory Doyle. And we're going to do something a a little different today, which is actually something uh, for longtime listeners that I've done in the past. And that is call in with the guest, uh, just because things happen in between recordings. Uh, I think I recorded with Rory uh, a few weeks ago, and right after right after we finished recording, all these awards and accolades came rolling in for him, and it's really exciting. So I have taken the opportunity to call Rory, who is on assignment somewhere right now, and I think maybe you can even hear a little bit of the noise, because Rory's sitting on the line. Hi, Rory.
1: Hey, Michael. How are you doing?
0: So where are you?
1: I am in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, at a pretty crazy event right now, where it's a combination of four-wheelers and dirt bikes and uh, of course the cowboys and cowgirls are out here too so it's uh, quite a mix of people out here today.
0: Oh it's so- it sounds uh, interesting, fantastic and uh, a little noisy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a little bit. I tried to find a quiet spot to talk with you but it's hard to get away from the
0: noise. I really appreciate you calling in so so yeah like I said Right after we finished recording, all of a sudden, you know, all these things that you had sort of applied for, or at least, um, at least the one I know award you you were applying for, uh, it all came in. So you want to tell us a little bit about the things that happened uh, after we finished recording?
1: Yeah, it's been uh, pretty wild. I did. I have applied to a number of things, and I guess uh, two really big things came in after we first talked and, and met. And first, actually, was the South. Arts Southern Prize, which was basically the grand prize for the South Arts Organization, which supports uh, artists in nine southern states, including Mississippi. So the nine of us um, fellows, as they call them, were in South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, to find out who would be the Southern Prize winner. And I was shocked, but I received that (laughs) award. I was the only photographer amongst the nine artists from the nine states, so it was uh, really, really exciting and a huge honor to receive that prize. Um, And literally the day after I received that prize, I jumped on a plane, flew to London to attend the Sony World Photo Awards and accept the Zeiss Photography Award. (laughs) And so this was... um, back-to-back back. i didn't even have a chance to really absorb it all and i'm speaking with you now and i was in germany yesterday and here i am in mississippi uh back out photographing
0: the cowboys and cowgirls so i'm sticking right with it wow that that's amazing now you i thought the first award was was the smithsonian award what did you call oh, it that's
1: right that is i totally forgot oh. uh, hopefully smithsonian can forgive me cause that <laughs> actually happened um uh, that did happen just a few days after we spoke I, that slipped my memory um so, <laughs> S- so smithsonian has a uh, annual photo contest and one of the photos from my project also won grand prize from that contest and so it's all been um i don't know somewhat numbing <laughs> to to have a, n- a number of um awards come in and That's uh, <laughs> crazy
0: so so the first award is called what again so the smithsonian was a grand prize award and that was amazing and then the southern award what, what's the name of it
1: so this is called um, the Southern prize and it's from the South arts organization, which is a great nonprofit. Um, they're based in Atlanta, but they support uh, independent artists throughout nine Southern states.
0: Wow. And, and I can hear the trucks. That's it. Uh, yeah. It sounds like a monster truck rally. <laughs> it's,
1: kind of, it's big. Uh, there's a big mud pit out here. So people are kind of like rolling their four wheelers through the mud. So oh, great photos.
0: That sounds like fun. So, this is, it's even better than I, I realized. The, um, you know, the nice thing is, and it's part of the conversation we have, is that you have, um, you know, the Zeiss Award and the Smithsonian Award, but you have an award that really, you know, lets you know that you're doing something good from where you are, right? The Southern exactly. Award. Yeah, that's really Yeah, nice. I mean, it was a,
1: a huge honor to receive that. I mean, all the awards have been a huge honor, but um, to get that support from the South and to be recognized by an organization that wants to help artists survive here, uh, mm. of course that's crucial and, and uh, something that will be a big benefit as the project moves forward.
0: That's just amazing, and congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, and so, you know, this in this episode we're going to talk a lot about your work, and you mentioned the, uh, the cowboys and the cowgirls, and we'll talk about that, and, and obviously you're continuing with the work, so congrats on everything.
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. It's hard to um, to kind of absorb everything as it goes comes in, and then uh, I continue to work on the project. Uh, just really thankful for for all the support and, and the attention the project has got. But something I said at the Sony uh, World Photo Awards was that this is you know this isn't necessarily about my awards. This is about the people in my photos, and uh, mm. people are, are learning about a community in rural Mississippi, and it's really special to, to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, I actually think you say something like that on the episode, so that's great. <laughs> and of course, thanks again to Nicole Crane for introducing us, and, and Nicole is on this episode as a co-host, so this is a really fun episode, and uh, I'm really glad we got to talk, and we got to meet.
1: Absolutely. it's uh, Again, it's a huge honor to be amongst all the peers that have been on, on your show, and um, I'm so thankful to, to be able to share a little bit of Mississippi with everyone.
0: Yeah, it's our, it's, uh, our privilege as well, so... Uh, uh, go uh, get some work done. <laughs> Keep it going. And uh, thanks again for calling in.
1: Thanks so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. Yep.
0: <laughs> I know you're all dressed up for a podcast. You said
2: like, <laughs>
3: My umbrella. <laughs> I need to start doing every You're interview. You dressed like
0: a cowboy for Rory. <laughs> please please bring best, that up.
2: I got a new Vespa yesterday, too. so. You great. got a new Vespa. I got a, I got a new Vespa. That's fantastic. You, you have a picture? I do. Oh, is it baby blue? I, no, I, tra- I
0: traded in baby blues
2: for
0: rockin' reds. Oh, nice. Oh Where is, it. Here it is. Oh, that's great. <laughs> a new Vespa. Nice, congrats. Oh yeah, just get yourself tucked in there. Well, great, we're all here. So not only do I have Rory Doyle here uh, for this episode, but we have Nicole Crane back. Hi, Nicole. Hi. (laughs) Thanks for coming in. So, you know, um, we were going to do a catch-up episode, and you got deathly ill, (laughs) right? Yes. You said you were caring for someone?
2: Yeah, my, my partner got sick and then I was, I thought he, we thought initially he had the flu and then oh. I was like, we got to get you to like a clinic and try to get this thing squared away. And luckily it wasn't the flu, but I ended up getting it.
0: Oh, all right. <laughs> and it was like
2: 104 fever <laughs> down the next day. Yeah, that's so. crazy. I mean, you were passed out. Oh, Yeah. yeah. I was like, "Give me all the medications and good night." <laughs> yeah, just, because I didn't even remember. You had right. asked me like what, the day <laughs> exactly. before. It was like the day before, and then I was like in the middle. You yeah. were like, "Do you want to do it now?" And I was like,
0: "So, so for those of you who have never uh, texted with Nicole, when you start, <laughs> uh-huh. it's it's a it's it's a commitment." There's a,
2: there's a long, there are long delays and and
0: chains of responses. And so so when you don't respond, I get nervous. Yes.
2: Yeah. Well, I respond a lot at once about a lot of things and then it's like radio silence. And then two days later they're Yeah.
0: Rory, have you had that experience? Yeah. That's, that's classic Nicole, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. In a nutshell. Emails too. I'm always telling other students and things. I'm like, please email, text me two or three times because it's not that I don't care.
0: Well, I'm glad you're healthy. Yes. So, Rory, what brings you to New York?
3: Wow, a number of things. I'm up here um, with extreme excitement. I, I came up for the Blink Connect portfolio review as well as the New York Times portfolio review that happened yesterday. So, yeah, how'd it go? It's amazing. It's like um, an opportunity that, you know, being based in, in rural Mississippi, uh, in a sense, it's like winning the lottery. If you're down there trying to connect with people up in the big media scene up here, uh, it's been uh, really a blessing to, to meet people face to face and then show the work, um, show the portfolio and, and talk about maybe future work. So
0: You're also part of... Nicole's Everyday Rural America, right?
3: Yeah, I met, I met Nicole last year and I was actually up in, in New York showing um, a cowboy project I'm working on in Mississippi and uh, that was at the Half King before, rest in peace, Half King. But um, yeah. Nicole was came to the show. But prior to that, we had been in touch because of the great effort she's doing to connect um, rural photographers around the whole country and with her connections to the South. Um, it's been really nice to network with her and then other Southern photographers through Everyday Rural America
2: right and then with with everyday rural you know a lot of that project is about trying to create a database of photographers that are working in and around rural areas across the US but also trying to bridge that that network between the New York scene all the editors and you know even grants resources that are available here that photographers in the southeast or in rural areas may not necessarily get access to those publications or, you know, that broader network. So, you know, really trying to bridge the gap a little bit there. So.
3: I mean, I can say I'm, I'm extremely thankful for, for Nicole's effort on that front, but also the connections that she's made for me and for other photographers, um, whether it's dropping a name in an email or being here in a podcast today, like it's,
0: it's really great that the connections that are coming as a result of that account. Yeah, no, that is what I love about doing this is all the connections being made and there are all these great now groups promoting underrepresented photography, underrepresented photographers. I mean, it's just its just been a, it's a great moment in photography, I think.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah,
3: Instagram and, and social media are crazy, the way that people are coming together and, and, and as a result, making projects and, and collaborating on things. When handled well, it's a fantastic
0: thing. <laughs>
2: absolutely. Yes, yeah. yes, a lot of conversations coming up at once, but right. a good moment to be in photography, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: So you're from Cleveland, Mississippi, which I didn't know existed. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> it's the real Cleveland. Come on. Everyone. Yeah. No. Um, I grew up in, I grew up in Southern Maine,
3: actually in the woods oh. of Maine and, and I've lived in Cleveland, Mississippi for, uh, it'll be 10 years this summer. Mm-hmm. So I'm a Southerner now if uh, it's, it's really become home and, and, and while I'm in a place where a lot of people don't know uh, of the Cleveland, Mississippi, um, it's, it's a amazing place to, to live, and, and there are plenty of stories to share, and, and uh, I've really fit in there really well with my wife, and um,
0: it's home. Yeah, and you got your master's degree at Delta...
3: Uh, Delta State University. Delta State University, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. The, the the home of the fighting okra mascot. Wow, you really? Gotta, you got to look it up. It's it's <laughs> the craziest college <laughs> mascot in the world. It's an okra with boxing gloves on.
2: Oh, that's wild.
3: Um, but yeah, I worked there for five years after I got
0: my master's there. I think I'm one of the few northerners that likes okra. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's really... it's. I mean, also, I, I was in Jackson Heights yesterday, so... Even some Indian food. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's so right. You gotta get, you gotta go to <laughs> the Indian restaurants to get the okra. <laughs> <To> get okra.
0: <laughs>
3: we fry it down south, though. It's gotta be nice <laughs> and fried. If, <laughs> if okra. the grease is hot enough, you can fry anything, <laughs> as they say.
0: Yeah, and then you were, um, let's see, a fellow through the Mississippi Arts Commission and the NEA for your project on African American cowboys and cowgirls.
3: Yeah, that was uh, extremely exciting to to receive some support to. I put 100% of that funds from the grant to open a full exhibit from two years worth of the cowboy project. And, uh, that just opened in February and it was an incredible event at our arts alliance in Cleveland, Mississippi and cowboys and cowgirls came out in the dozens and and the crowd was, was literally packed and it was extremely diverse, which was like a really nice community building opportunity. And uh, I don't think that they've ever had a, a show, have that sort of impact so it was really special
0: what got you interested in this in the subculture of cowboys and cowgirls great question does anyone say cowgirls anymore or is it, i don't I know
3: worry?
1: i i do <laughs> i'll defer to the okay. I,
2: expert
1: <laughs> i
3: say it but it's an extra uh, couple of syllables but um but it's important to include cowgirls in the in the conversation too but yeah uh, it is a, a male-dominated uh, activity, probably globally, but um, in Mississippi, in mm-hmm. the Delta as
0: well. Yeah, so there isn't a uh, cow X, like, uh, <laughs> pronoun yet? Non- or? Non-binary. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay. We'll work on that. Okay. Um,
2: but it, it's true. There is a, oh, God, what is it called? There is a. There is an event where it is non-binary cattle ranchers, I oh, think. Right. Um, wow. Oh, my God. I think it's actually upstate. I'll have to find it, but yeah. I can't remember exactly makes what it's That would make sense. Called. I mean, the it's origin like, is... It's the gay rodeo, I think, is what it's called. Oh, okay. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, cattle ranchers and cattle hands are the, the origins of cowboys and cowgirls, right? Right.
3: And in Mississippi, it's quite different. Like The project um, is essentially about the social identity of the people here in the Delta who, who don't... They're not cattle ranch ranch hands they are you know recreationally coming together socially coming together um but they do identify as cowboys and cowgirls the mm-hmm. hats the boots the music
0: yep. so yeah you have some fantastic work on the Smithsonian site um which shows that it's you know it's it's people dressed as cowboys and cowgirls do in just just sort of modern everyday right. events and things, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, and it's uh it's interesting because they uh, they're all from different backgrounds. They're students, retirees, um, some work at the grocery store. So like everybody's different, and the common denominator is is the love of horses, but also this <laughs> identity of, of of the hats and the boots and the Western culture. Yeah.
2: Um. And and would you say? I guess getting started on that project is that you know, cowboys historically we think of Western TV shows and and this idea of the white cowboy. Would you say that that over time that's been a, a community that's largely been left out of historical references and mainstream entertainment?
3: Absolutely, of course. The Hollywood image is is John Wayne and you know this classic heroic this white archetype of a cowboy but the reality is that there have been black cowboys in history even before the Civil War but of course they were became more well known through the Buffalo Soldiers during the Civil War Um, but their efforts to settle the western frontier were were extremely crucial but the representation of that history has not been on an equal level of of what um, we do know in America as typically a white cowboy and really, you know, I grew up in Maine, so the diversity in Maine is, is quite lacking, and the diversity in Mississippi is, particularly in the Delta, which is a majority African-American place. Me, I, I was actually at the uh, Christmas parade where I where this whole project started, was a small group of about four or five riders at the end of the Christmas parade. Apparently they've been doing it every year, and I had gone to the parade previously, but in some ways it's symbolic because I never saw it before, and I think a lot of people actually don't pay really close attention, but they've been riding in that parade for years. And again, being from Maine, I was like, what is this? What, what this image, this right in front of me of, of black cowboys. And, and really it, it's, um, you know, shame on me for not realizing that diversity existed in, in the Western cowboy culture. Um, but which is, I think also symbolic of, of how it's been throughout history here in America.
0: Yeah. I don't, I I don't think it's, it's difficult to not know the history. I mean, I think it's been set up that way because we you know, we just grew up with Westerns and even spaghetti Westerns and, yeah. you know, for the history. But uh, I did a little research just, you know, out of curiosity. And uh, the original cowboys were actually Mexicans. The original mm-hmm. cowboys were the vaqueros. Right. Um, and the, the culture of African American cowboys came about through slavery and post slavery right. and being hired back as cattle ranchers, yep. uh, uh, emancipated slaves.
3: Yeah. Right. And so, well, obviously the issue of equality at that time was nowhere near what it should have been, but it was actually an opportunity that was a little bit better off for, for, to be a black cowboy than to be some, something else in terms right. of a career. And, and part of that is because no matter what race you were, you, you were working in a crew and <laughs> you all depended on each other to make sure that cattle got from A to B. And if they didn't, then you're all in trouble. And so uh, the dependence on one another was, um, was a matter of survival.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if this was part of your your work being shown by the Smithsonian, but there was an article on Smithsonian by Katie uh, and I'm gonna bo- botch the name. I apologize. Not Jim, not Jim Bottom, not Jim Bottom. Right. And it was it was on this history and on this history of emancipated slaves being hired back when um, when Texans ran off to fight with the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they left at the time slaves in charge of cattle and herds and and then when they came back they needed they uh, after uh slaves were emancipated they needed to hire them back to right. and become cattle herders right. and, and that's where they really learned the trade right right uh was that article in, in conjunction with anything you did um i've used some
3: some of the smithsonian research oh. like one one thing that that's mentioned um that's very important to mention is that at that time like a quarter of cowboys were black so mm-hmm. like one in four cowboys were were african-american or emancipated slaves and it's like again, back to that history that, that we haven't shared. We just have always yeah. <laughs> ingrained this vision of, of a, um, a white cowboy.
2: And I guess also on that topic, you know, as a white person, you know, first of all, just coming into that community, what, what, how... First
0: of all, are you white? And do you identify as white? <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> I'm a white white male for Maine. Okay. Yes.
2: yes. <laughs> and, but, I mean, coming into that project, what challenges did you face just gaining trust within that community yeah and do you feel like you're still you know fully trusted amongst their families even
3: yeah and so it's it's an absolutely relevant question but what's funny is that when i'm there and i'm with my camera like there's never we don't ever sit there and talk about like what you know what's this white photographer doing in this space like there's a coexistence in in mississippi while our history is is really sad uh, there is a coexistence today that you don't see in a lot of places and so you know these are my neighbors these are community members that uh, are so used to seeing me around that the trust was really quick i don't know if that's like just a little taste of southern hospitality but there were a couple people that i knew previously just from the community before i even started on the project and so it wasn't like i was a complete stranger but uh, it also didn't take long for for me to be accepted in a, a familial way and and um as i continued with the project like race was never really evident or, or spoken about, I guess, in that sense. But of course, I'm always very conscious of, of being a white photographer yeah. in a space that that down in, in the Mississippi Delta, there are white cowboys. But but the project I'm working on is is about this hidden subculture of black cowboys. And what's special is that upon the trust and, and the continuance of, of being around the, the community, like, um, I've been able to be around them so much that uh, I'm, I'm able to document them on the horse, which is the obvious photography, and then I'm able to to have the trust and, and the connection to be in their homes or to be in everyday life moments. Um, and so it, it's a very tight connection. I mean, we, we know where each other lives, and so it's <laughs> like um, I'm not popping in for an assignment and then out the door.
2: Right, and I think that that's a lot of my experience as well, documenting in the South, is a lot of the times just taking that interest initially you know, the South is very hospitable in that way, and and people, typically speaking, are pretty open to letting people in once that, you know, interest level is is sort of put I, forth. I think Nicole,
0: even when you were you were on the show, we had a little conversation about the ideas of um, how there's this. Uh, maybe we didn't put it in these terms, but there's a an economic segregation in the North that's not even really spoken about, right? It right. Just, you just have these neighborhoods, but uh, in the South, there's this more kind of awareness of where places are integrated, and where places are not so right. integrated, right? Right. And, and, you know, it's not even
3: um, that it's so distinct in terms of where you can and can't go in the South, where you're, these people that you're so close to, you're involved in each other's lives in a way that's often quite more involved than, than you would have up here because of the way that we have self-segregated up North. Um, and so it's really special to to be allowed to as long as you're being respectful in that space um, to be accepted and and to keep getting invited to come back but i should mention too that you know in talking about how i even started this story like i was i was really looking for uh, a unique story in the mississippi delta that wasn't done over and over you know you see a lot of the same themes from mississippi probably most notably like the blues the old african-american bluesmen that of course are legendary in mississippi the other things you see a lot are are the racial um racial elements of of our history that are are so focused on uh you see poverty bad education and also in the Mississippi Delta you see a lot of stories on agriculture but stumbling across them in, in the parade I was like this is there's something here there's a story here and and um and maybe the other thing too where I got a little trust was that I am somewhat of an outsider I'm I'm from Maine and Um, I don't have the accent when I first meet these guys. And so maybe there's a little bit of trust and acceptance on that front too.
2: What are y'all doing over here? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Since you've started photographing that project, I know I've had people in speaking with me about your work bring up other photographers as well. Have you come to find other photographers that have done work on black cowboys that now that your work is out and getting exposure, you're becoming more aware of?
3: Yeah, so of course, like I've researched other projects that have been done and even um, contemporary work, there's a beautiful book called Fletcher Street, which focuses on the, uh, and pardon me, I forget the photographer's name, but it focuses on the city cowboys of Philadelphia. And so like, it's really interesting to compare that, you know, like the urban cowboy versus, you know, remote Mississippi Delta cowboy, and, of course, there are some similarities, but, you know, Mississippi Delta is also a really unique place where we don't have access to many of the things that you have in cities. And so there's a lot of different photos, particularly with the landscape that comes up. But to answer your question a little bit more, there's, you know, there are people around the country and Ivan, I think.
1: I've yeah, sp-
2: Ivan McClellan. Um, and even in everyday rural, it's it's been challenging for me trying to try to make it a, a focus to diversify That database as well, understanding, you know, just from square one, having access to even a camera, much less a photo program or art program kind of attributes itself to the lack of diversity, even from the photo industry aspect of it in rural areas. But, you know, Ivan McClellan, I just came across my radar a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh, he's also shooting black cowboys. And I was trying to get an understanding. I think he's maybe in Oklahoma if I remember correctly, but, and is also African-American. So I was like, oh, well, you know, how long has this guy, you know, been flying under my radar? And again, you know, getting them sort of out into the the public eye a little bit more, at least making those connections. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I quickly looked up uh, Fletcher Street while you were talking. Martha Camarillo. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's a little bit older of a book, but it's
3: shot beautifully. Like and okay. it, and also that that culture in Philadelphia still exists, so it's nice to like oh, see okay.
0: see that it's still around. Yeah, and you um you've now taken this this idea of the subculture of cowboys and cowgirls, and and you've started a global. Uh, oh, I've, I just said the name earlier, and I've already blanked on it. Global cowboys. Really. Oh, global yeah. cowboys. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah yeah it's um
3: of course being so interested in what's around me in mississippi every time once a year my wife and i will go somewhere new we will save up and go to a new country and try and find a place in the world that we haven't been in and the place that we can learn about and every trip since about 2015 or 16 i will actually research okay is there a cowboy or is there a horse riding culture wherever we're ending up and so i've i've been able to do that in a little bit in jamaica it's not really a cowboy scene it's much more of a horse riding or even horse racing scene Mm. i've done that in colombia a couple summers ago i was in um canada with my sister like so everywhere I'm, i'm going i'm looking for for this culture or this dependence on the horses either whether it is western or another place that's really interesting is cuba which actually has this western culture into their Uh, horse riding but also they have horses because they depend on them for transportation and so you'll see horses particularly in um, Trinidad and other places like where they actually need a horse to get around or to use them to farm as well and so um well I'm not an expert on the history of horses throughout civilization (laughs) I think it would be really they've been around a long time (laughs) (laughs) and it's fascinating if it's really fascinating to think about um how many cultures around the world depend on horses and and throughout history have depended on them and uh i think i'll you know i'll just keep going with that and see where it goes who knows um how many countries i can visit but that would be really neat you yeah. haven't
2: found you even found i i saw you post a photo of a black cowboy in mcdonough georgia which is my hometown and i was like <laughs> what is Rory doing down there my gosh
3: but it's been like really um really special that you know that the project started in Mississippi, but now I had, a res- I had an artist residency, excuse me, in um, Pike County, Georgia, and not too far from McDonough and, and Atlanta area. And so I literally started the project there. That was the, the pitch for, for the residency was that I want to see if there's a culture here as well. And much like in Cleveland, Mississippi, like getting to know the people who are involved was very organic. Like I just would ask somebody and then they would know. And then the next thing I know, I had three other people to call. And in a, in an hour or two, I had a place to go and and go and meet someone and photograph. And I literally asked a lady in the deli in Zebulon, <laughs> Georgia, if she knew any cowboys, because she was she was giving me a hard time about what I had ordered from the deli. And so I was like, she's a, she's a friendly lady. I'm just gonna were be you friendly. Ordering and a bagel? What were you no, ordering? No, I, <laughs> I was ordering a half pound of salami, but she said I had to order a pound, otherwise I couldn't order any. But. Anyway, she led to a cowboy, her nephew, actually. And then her nephew led to two more cowboys. And then, you know, in a couple hours, I already had known you people. You are
2: par- practically at my family's house already. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nicole, I've met your family here in Mexico. That's right. <laughs>
3: but I think, uh, you know, that's also probably, um, it, it It goes to show that this community, while it's been around forever, hasn't, you know, they they're not used to being photographed or not used to having a platform to share their story. And so... Along the lines of being trusted or accepted, like people are really excited to, to have an opportunity to, to be photographed and to share. And, and the exhibit, after the exhibit opened in Cleveland, there's a, a gentleman in, in Cleveland, everyone who they just call him Cowboy. Mm-hmm. And if you say Cowboy, they know who you're talking about because he's, you know, quote, you know, quote unquote, the, the leader of the group. But Cowboy called me the day after the exhibit opened and said, Thank you so much for, for doing that. Like I've been riding for 50 years and nobody's ever paid attention. Oh, nice. And so that was again confirmation that, like, yeah, this is this You're is doing something yeah.
0: uh, interesting and probably good, uh, yeah. right?
2: And, yeah. and also, I mean, if on that topic, representation in the Southeast in terms of of media, I mean, what has been your experience? You know, you gra- you graduated from Delta State University, and then you were the photographer, yeah. the in-house photographer for the for the college there. So, I know you moved on from that job. How many months ago? Not long, like
3: August of 2018. So, um, you know, half a year or whatever that's been. But,
2: And breaking into freelance, you know, what has been the, the challenge for you trying to get access to the work, you know, that might be around there? And I know I've had a similar experiences as well, where I think people are just like, you know, no one from the media has ever even, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> taken an interest in this culture or this community. So yeah. they, just,
0: just before and I want you to answer that just before you answer that, there'll be a. Which came first, the photography work or being a student there? So,
3: yes, I was a student first. Okay. I got my master's in education there. Oh, and okay. then right after school, I worked at a daily newspaper in a very small budget, a daily newspaper, the only daily newspaper in town. And made it about one year at the paper before I was able to convince the university that they needed a photographer because they didn't have a photographer after the 2008 budget cuts. And so there was, this was the only university like major university in the area and they don't have somebody to, to make images and particularly at a time where imagery is becoming so important for college recruiting, et cetera. Um, so I was there for five years and while I am really grateful I had that job, um, I was able to grow as a photographer and, and enhance my skills. I was also freelancing on the side, essentially full-time freelancing on top of full-time university job and I'm thankful that I am in a place where there is plenty of work. So I, I have that. You know, I come up here sometimes and I hear photographers complaining like, oh, there's so many people here competing for the same jobs. And so there are not a ton of freelancers where I am. But I do have aspirations to be somebody that the media from up here or from other media outlets around the world calls on instead of having somebody fly in when there is a national story. And there's been a couple of national stories, believe it or not, in Cleveland, Mississippi, including... A school segregation case that dates back to all the way to 1965, where we had school schools that were not completely desegregated. And so that happened a couple of years ago, and a number of reporters from different outlets were coming in. And I did end up getting hired to cover it, but only for the Mississippi, Clarion-Ledger, Jackson, Mississippi's paper, and you know, all these other outlets were flying people in.
2: And, and yeah, that's been a big issue with media representation now is that there are a lot of outside photographers and journalists constantly coming in to cover these communities that they're not necessarily familiar with. I mean, I've done, you know, two stories I can think of just off the top of my head in Alabama, where the reporter, you know, flew in from Connecticut, or from even Canada, and had never even been to the southeast, much less Alabama. And then they're just sort of in the thick of it being asked if they're fake news. And I'm you know, it really starts to get into that media bias conversation and the media distrust. So the the importance of utilizing photographers that are there, understand the community and have access um, really gets into a question of media ethics, I think, as well. But, you know, especially any thoughts you have on that and even local newspapers, how is that working now? Do you see local newspapers struggling? Really? Yeah, so
3: local papers are really struggling. When I first moved there, there was a second paper and that was a weekly paper, and then and then we had the, the daily as well, but the weekly just couldn't afford to keep running. And so now we're stuck with one paper, and then there's a number of communities that have no paper. And so on top of that, there's also not many places where people can go to become trained to be a photographer or even a photojournalist. And so, you know, it's I, I can't point my finger at New York or L.A. or, or anywhere and say... Why don't you know about me if if there isn't this culture of 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 having uh, a pool of people to work with, and so even you know even with through everyday rural America now like we're able to use the internet and social media to find that there are people here and there are people across Mississippi who are doing great photography at small town papers and covering stories that otherwise um, people at the bigger outlets won't know about. Mm.
2: Right, and I think that really gets down to you know as something I've brought up several times but there's no main there's no national print publication really based in the whole southeast region so fundamentally they might have a few reporters on staff that are kind of covering the whole region the whole area so you really do miss a lot of stories and pockets so I think even trying to to really demand that attention from the outlets, especially leading into election season, yeah, you know, that these people are out here and there are journalists that you can utilize yeah. and hopefully will accept more pitches.
0: It's such an interesting landscape right now because newspapers were supposed to be dead by mm. now. Um, <laughs> right. and. You know, and they're they're actually you know because of our uh, political landscape right now, they're actually doing better than ever uh, because you know people are consuming politics like crazy uh, right now. But but what has already happened is the great centralization of ownership, mm-hmm. and so there aren't outlets as many outlets, even the. The local community papers are now being centralized by larger organizations, and so you don't get that kind of uh, local coverage or that day-to-day coverage that you used to get. Uh, there's also a financial incentive for large media areas to have photographers in place, to have journalists in place who know the area, who know the region. Um, so I'm, you know, it seems like that might. And, and your experience, you know, with the New York Times Portfolio Review, I'm sure you. Saw a lot of photographers from way out of New York, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I think, you know, speaking with them, everyone who was there, it's like some of the same frustrations that I have. And then that's also even um, amplified when people are coming from South America or coming from Africa and and coming from Europe to be a part of the New York Times portfolio review, having some of the same issues in their country. But here in the U.S., like, you know, I know that I'm not the only one that um, is having the same sort of frustration having, having uh, worked in the field for a number of years, but still not having a connection to the people who are working for these bigger outlets that really need shooters to begin with. So mm-hmm. uh, having an opportunity to meet face-to-face like I have this week is, uh, is extremely valuable.
0: Yeah.
2: And we do talk about parachute journalism when it comes to, you know, New York times or outlets in the U S sending their photographers in to Africa or into the middle East and, and, and covering these communities. But we, we often overlook it in our own backyard, you know, even media ethics, I think class coverage, you know, is another big ethical thing. We don't talk a whole lot about. And even with everyday rural, it's like this, the, the idea that, you know, class doesn't come into the, the ethics conversation as much, I think as women Photograph is tackling issues of gender representation in the media, diversify authority collective diversity, but also, you know, that fundamentally These communities that are cut off from the larger resource pool um, should be a topic that we're also considering, especially in terms of media coverage, political coverage in these areas. But um, we often overlook the idea of parachute journalism in our own backyard. It's like we also this is also unethical in this sense as well in many ways.
0: Right. Uh yeah, whether it is a, a gender or race or, or socioeconomic, right? And and I'll throw in center for photographers of color and photofeminists. And that's why, you know, what we, when I, when we started what I was saying earlier, the that's what's great about these social media organizations. Uh, you know, just being there, like just look them up. Look at their directories. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. There's so many like it's basically a database for you to find the people that yep. you need. And yeah.
2: Uh, with freelancing, what kind of jobs do you see coming in? for you in Mississippi or in the area or do you do you see yourself staying and being able to freelance? Yeah, full so
3: time? so I do and I and I think it goes back to the need to have people on the ground in these places especially in places where there's you know the there's a big lack of, of writers and photographers. And uh, I've committed to the area and I've committed to the community and You know, I would I would love as a result of being up here and meeting editors that the next time that there is news in Mississippi, whether it's politics or the election or a school segregation case, or even we had the issue of the Trump Hotel, which you guys may have heard of the American Idea brand hotel. And the first location was going to be Cleveland, Mississippi. And actually, the Trump Foundation pulled out. And so like it's no longer involved with the project. But you know, when that happened, there were all these people coming in as well. And so now hopefully, um, now that I've had a chance to come up here and meet, I, I feel really fortunate even to have that chance because I know that a lot of people you know, don't always have the chance to get to a review, but also to just to make the trip up here. And so now that I've had uh, the opportunity to do that, um, I'm hoping that um, I can get a few more calls from from national outlets or international outlets and um, keep sharing Mississippi stories.
0: So you actually never have, uh, formally studied photography. You studied journalism as an undergrad in Vermont. Right? That's right. St. Michael's College. Yeah. Did a, a study abroad in uh, New Zealand. Yep. Uh, and then in, like you said before, in Delta State, you studied education. Where, yeah. where did you get your photographic education?
3: Yeah, so I've taken one photojournalism elective, which is the <laughs> la- last semester of my senior year at St. Michael's college and it was um it was basically the only non-art photography course at the university and and i will say as a college student there were a number of kids in the class that were just there for an easy three credits because most people were there for for the writing and for the journalism and the print journalism instead of photography but you know i will never forget one the professor jerry swope shout out to jerry um because really he was you know the spark that that got me going in this particular career path and I'll also never forget that a lot of the, the peers in my class at that time were doing stories that were easy. They were photographing their roommate when we got an assignment or they were photographing their friend on the football team. I was going out and photographing the Latino immigrants who worked all the dairy farms in Vermont. Or when we had to do a sports assignment, people were on campus photographing their friends. But I went out and photographed the roller derby team in the community. Like hmm. So these were... I could just tell that this was something that I wanted to do um, and this is the way I wanted to tell stories as opposed to to writing and and I never went back from that you know of course I went to study education but um, it was quite hard to finish school and not have a formal training in photography and to get hired and so I used uh, the time up until before I started working for Delta State to just practice um, work on storytelling work on technique, of course, without much formal training. And I guess being in Mississippi where there are not a lot of photographers to compete with, it was an opportunity to actually develop my career enough to the point where I was ready to freelance.
2: Are you having the video itch yet?
3: Oh, I I don't have the video itch, but I get asked that a lot. I'm much more interested in audio, you know, audio interviews to be paired with, with still images. This is uh, embarrassing, but my my vision is so bad, so it's really hard for me to manually focus with video. I have a really big challenge with that. But um,
0: oh, that's why you went with the
3: Sony camera with eye <laughs> autofocus. <laughs> exactly, but don't I just tell anyone.
2: Myself. Did you? <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it's, so, it's so dark, and yeah. sometimes it gets hard to to really yeah. see. I imagine I'll be (laughs) losing my sight. Oh, my my vision's so bad right now. So bad. I just turned 30. I'm like prepared for the worst. Here we go, (laughs) taking the dive.
0: So you you study journalism and education. Did you think you were going to teach journalism?
3: No, I never really thought that I would end up being a teacher. Like I've always the training as a journalist. I was I was always the element that I always appreciated was like going out and meeting people and interviewing people. But I think by taking Jerry's photojournalism 101 class, like I was um, convinced that I wanted to do that through the camera instead of through pen and paper. And um, I've never, to this point, had the the itch to teach yet in terms of being a photojournalism teacher. Um, I still feel like there's just um, a level of excitement that I have being out in the field that I'm not ready to to give up on yet. And I don't know if that's selfish, that I'm uh, not ready to teach on it. But I also think about when I'm up here in New York and I'm meeting all these editors and I ask, I've asked a few of them, like, what's it like to be not shooting as much? Mm. And, and everyone says how much they miss. You know, they're behind the desk assigning people or, or working on the screen as opposed to in the field. Sure.
0: So why did you study education?
3: <laughs> why it's edu- That's a great question. So it was actually centralized degree to um, health, physical education, and recreation. And so essentially, if I was going to be a teacher, it was going to be um, like physical education or recreation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it was not, you know, in the classroom, traditional K through twelve teacher. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What did you do uh, at your, on your semester abroad to New Zealand?
3: Yeah, that was great. So at that point, I still wasn't into photography. That was even before I took the photojournalism course. So I was, um, I was a reporter intern for the largest daily paper in Auckland, New Zealand. And at that time, I was also, I'm backtracking a little bit here. So I went to Delta State for grad school with you know the focus on recreation because I've always been involved in sports. And so I thought maybe I'd either be a physical education teacher or a coach and I played sports all my life, but while I was a journalism student, I predominantly wrote about sports. And so, over in New Zealand, I was a sports writer intern for this this big paper. Rugby? Rugby. Uh, rugby. I have no idea what the rules of rugby are. <laughs> and, like, the first week that I'm at this paper, <laughs> guess who's going to cover this big rugby? You know, they call them tests when they're, like, a really big match. Test matches. Yeah. Yes. And so, like, I'm over there covering the women's. The, in New Zealand, the, the, te- the rugby is huge. It's life. And sure. so, um, the name of the, the team is the All Blacks, named after the Maori culture in New Zealand. And guess who was covering like this big (laughs) women's all blacks test versus (laughs) I forget which country they didn't get any report turned in. So it was, (laughs) it was a mess, but they did eventually put me on the basketball team to cover that. So that, that worked out great. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's pretty funny. And then what did your folks do? You grew up in Maine, you said, right? I grew up in Maine
3: and in very remote part of Maine called West Newfield. And it took me a half hour to get to, to junior high and, and high school, and then I eventually went to a really great, really great private school in um, Dover, New Hampshire, called St. Thomas Aquinas, which which actually ended up being like really challenging and preparing me for. I for know college. it well. You I know My
0: it. my niece and nephew went there. At, yeah.
3: So shout out to yeah. St. Thomas Aquinas. It's an excellent school. And then my two younger sisters ended up going there after I did. And and. It's it a really great school to prepare people for the college world, but also um, just make you a more critical thinker.
0: Yeah. Um, my cousin was the Dover police captain for, I think, 30 years. Oh, wow. Gary DeKolfmacher. Hi, Gary.
3: Yeah, I hope he doesn't remember my name. <laughs> <laughs> Check uh, Rory's files for me. Yeah,
0: yeah so, so you, we were getting to your parents.
3: Yeah, so... Um, my parents are uh, really interesting. They grew up in the suburbs of the city here in New York. They grew up in um, White Plains and Scarsdale, I think, if I have it right. And um, yeah, so they ended up settling in Maine in a, in a really remote part. They're, the town only had about a thousand people, and I couldn't actually um, see neighbors. I could hear them through the woods. And so my parents were very interested in, in that rural experience. It's a beautiful state, as you know. And they had—my dad was— has was always a career teacher he was a seventh seventh and eighth grade science teacher and my mom actually is probably a big reason why i got into journalism because uh uh, she was a Reporter for the local paper, or she was the only reporter for this town for oh, a really? paper yeah. that represented this county, and so that's probably where some of the journalism comes in. And and then, um, of course, the connection to sports and the outdoors, being being in the woods of Maine.
0: So, was it school that led you down to Mississippi? Then,
3: um, so so that you know, school. I went. To oh, St. that was Mike's, more recently. That's right. Yeah, St. Yeah. St. Mike's yeah. up in in Vermont, which right. was a beautiful place to go to school as yeah. well.
0: What brought you to Mississippi?
3: So I got uh, an opportunity to teach in the local school district in exchange for a free master's degree in fact i got paid oh. to get my master's degree and so uh, my wife and i knew nothing about mississippi we knew nothing. We were already married at the time we were already married okay. yep and we just picked up we had enough very few belongings at that point so we could fit it all in one tiny car and we moved from arizona where we met and settled in mississippi Oh,
0: okay
2: on that topic and i've had the pleasure of meeting your wife marisol and I know that she's also of Mexican descent, correct?
3: She was born and raised in Sonora, Mexico. Yeah.
2: And that's also a community that, that you've been starting to look into. What projects are you working on now?
3: Yeah, in fact, when I moved to Mississippi, or when we moved to Mississippi, um, one of Marisol's concerns was that there, that there wouldn't be much of a Latino community there because when you look at the census, there's a, it's actually a majority African-American place in the Mississippi Delta, And I remember looking at the census 10 years ago before we moved. And it was like 0.03% Latino. And she was like moving from Sonoran Desert. And we met in Arizona. So she was still in the Sonoran Desert. And so for the first time in her life, she was going to be in a place completely new and completely different from that desert environment. And um, the project that I started before the Cowboys work was actually exploring A growing latino population so there was a i don't have numbers to back this up but we started to see more restaurants mexican restaurants we started to see more houses being built in these latino communities that were outside of town you start to see um, a couple of markets pop up and so to me it was um obviously a story that i wanted to explore and marisol being fluent in spanish you know from day one has, has kind of been a bridge to that community for me and we were invited to a number of things, where, whether it was uh, church events or celebrations of Virgin of Guadalupe, Christmas celebrations where they carry out traditions, even in the homes. So they'll have an altar that travels from one home to the other, and then mm-hmm. there'll be a celebration and a meal and prayer at each home. And so I started that, I want to say around 2015. And then as the political campaign started to have more anti-immigrant rhetoric and, and people started to become a little bit more uncomfortable around a camera, I backed off a little bit from that project as well. And it gets back to the question of, should I be the one photographing, but also the issue of people feeling a little bit afraid to be identified and, and to be seen through photography. Oh, yeah. So I'm still working on that Casually, you could say, compared to the Cowboys project. But I, I am very curious to see how that atmosphere changes, particularly with the 2020 election, and, and to see um, if there is a new president or if, if that atmosphere changes as a result.
0: I think um, you photographed in Mexico for also for Global Cowboys, right?
3: That's right. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So Sonora, have either of you guys been to that part of Mexico? No. no. So it's... Um, it's desert, but it's beautiful desert. And then there's also a section of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a section that um, is on the Sea of Cortez, not far from, from where Marisol grew up. But all around is cowboy culture. Oh, and wow. This cowboy culture that you think of. When you think of Texas or the Latino or Mexican cowboys that date back, you know, over a century ago in in Western America. And so it's a really strong community there as well. You'll see guys with their hats and boots and um, they'll have occasional festivals where everybody's coming together, riding.
2: Do Mm. you see Mexican cowboy communities in Mississippi the, or, in or anywhere Delta in the U.S.?
3: That's a great question, but when I photograph them, uh, the community of the Latino population in the Delta, they're wearing the same Western wear that you would see in Texas or even uh, in the African-American cowboy community, but I haven't seen like the, the same um, trail riding, mm. rodeo, horse show events that I've seen for the African-American community. So it's interesting that identity is still there that I, that they bring with them from Mexico or from other Central American countries, and they they will wear it, but I haven't seen actually really any of them with horses. It's been kind of interesting.
2: I guess maybe it might be a little, I mean, I can't say for sure, but, you know, going public. Like you said, it seems much more like getting out of the public eye a little bit, so I imagine intentionally not yeah. a, exactly going around and... Pa- parading with parading. their horses yeah, yeah. Parading yeah. The horses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh,
0: have you also done interviews then with the people you're photographing do you write as well
3: for the cowboy project yeah yeah so i've done um i've i've done one uh, longer form piece that just came out in a regional magazine in the south and it's kind of a synopsis of what the project is but also includes some interviews and include some quotes from the cowboys and um I I know that with the project being an ongoing piece for me, that there needs to be a little bit of direction in terms of the narrative. And I would like to central in on some figures who can be much more prominent in the project as opposed to just imagery, having some of their words share that history and that, that story. So that there's a level of interaction from them. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I'd like to take it next and have their quotes and their stories, particularly the elder population, have a voice and and tell the story through their words.
0: Right, they might have this sense of history and connection of where this culture came from, right? Yeah, yeah. and
3: and I have the, the family that I've interviewed most is the one that I've been able to find through oral history accounts, um, been around the longest in the area, and also The other cowboys in the area have all been connected to this family in one way or another, whether it's a horse show or a trail ride, or maybe their horse actually came from their farm at one point. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I would love to, again, particularly with the older cowboys and cowgirls that are, are still there to document through writing and through interviews that history, which is so important.
0: So, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what is your, is, is freelance your primary source of income now?
3: Yeah, yeah. As of August 2018, I resigned from the university and um, I feel really lucky going back to Nicole, some of your questions about like if I see myself staying there and, and um, being able to make it as a freelancer in a place where people aren't uh, doing that for, for the most part, career wise. I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of connections with Mississippi and Southern outlets. Mm-hmm. And so that keeps me afloat. I do a lot of magazine editorial stuff, and I do uh, commercial stuff for businesses in town. And um, hopefully, even within the last year, I've had, a, uh, I would say, about three to four national outlets on me, and I'm not even entirely sure how they found me so <laughs> in some ways that's a good sign yeah maybe it's everyday rural america or maybe it's <laughs> yeah. nicole name dropping or other people yeah. that, that I, do
2: to, I do try to send that database to editors and i'm hoping to get it to a, a physical platform soon so yeah. hopefully it does help i have had editors actually ask you know for your contact info, so hopefully it Yeah, does and help. that's nice. so,
3: so uh, valuable to, to me, but also to other people in, in the South who don't have the opportunity to come up here and, and present the work face to face. And I would love to, to build, you know, you know, I don't know if selfish is the word again, but I would love to build that for myself personally, but also um, for others in, in Mississippi and across the South to have an opportunity to put their body of work in, in front of the national scene.
2: And and that's something I'm hoping to develop with the Everyday Project moving forward is figuring out a way to get some of these editors and even educators that are based up here that do these portfolio reviews to actually have some sort of Southeastern conference, maybe to start just to try to bridge that a little more. And also even utilizing people that are there as well. There might be editors even right. just regionally that would be beneficial, you know, CNN or something like that. that
0: well, I mean it. Atlanta's already a media hub. It's not like it's, you know, foreign. Like you're, right, go, you're right. going to crossing some line or something. Right. Yeah. But, you know, getting... <laughs> you Mississippi
3: know, is. So, oh, yeah. okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So actually just trying to, to bring those groups together. But, you know, on that note, in the Southeast, are, just for other listeners that might be listening and that might be from that region, do you recommend any residency programs, uh, publications that you know, people in the Southeast might reference or even in Mississippi that you feel are very culturally relevant to that area?
3: Yeah, so there's a, a, a few things. First, one that I actually was able to do the residency that I mentioned is called Slow Exposures. And it's a relatively smaller festival that where it's actually a group show and, and it's all southern, rural southern photographers.
2: Season.
0: Yeah, <laughs> take, take a sip of water. I got these giant bottles of water I, for I, everybody. I actually
2: lost my voice and I'm just now, I was like, I don't even have be able to speak. <laughs> like yesterday, I, I didn't go out last. I did the events because I was just like, I literally can't speak anymore. I
3: lost my voice from after the Blink event because there was, there was a party after the event oh. and it was like everyone yelling. Yeah, over yeah, music, yeah. And it was the lady with Nat Geo and I was like, Almost like tears coming out of my eyes, trying
0: not oh, no. to cough. It yeah was like, the tickle. <laughs> yes, right. You don't want to do it in the middle of like yeah. this you portfolio can't even say review, excuse me, you're right? Like it's like <coughs> no, but I did. I Meanwhile, like, you look like you're about to cry.
3: Yeah, <laughs> well, I almost was, and then there was two little bottles of water that were clearly hers, and I was like, "Is that yours?" And I just like took it and started drinking.
2: <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm leaving that in.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're still rolling? Yes.
3: (laughs) Okay, well, I'm sorry, Rachel from Nat Geo.
0: (laughs) Yeah, where were we? Oh, we're we're back. So the opportunities. (laughs) We're back. I have a voice.
3: Um, Slow Exposures is a great group festival that features um, rural southern photography. So it's focusing on rural and remote photographers and bringing people together, every year for a festival which is also attended by some of those you know some of the atlanta scenes some of the atlanta media people um but also there are art curators there so if you're interested in exhibiting um, there's an opportunity for you to do that as well the other one of course is the duke center for documentary studies like if you want to study and become a photojournalist that's a great program competitive program to get into and, and actually tom rankin who i know from there used to teach at delta state university and so there's a little of a Mississippi connection, and he's done a lot of work in Mississippi. The easiest one would be to join Everyday Rural America <laughs> and, and, and get to know some of these other people and, and actually find out about opportunities that do exist. But I would also say, if you are a young photographer and or even just a newer photographer, apply, apply, apply. Like I applied to the New York Times Portfolio Review probably three times before I got in, and of course that's frustrating, but... As I look back on it, it wasn't time for me to get in until I got in. And so, be patient, work on your body of work and then explore what opportunities are out there.
0: That's that's really good advice. You know, a rejection letter from uh, a gallery, from a, an award, a competition, a fellowship, a portfolio review, it's just it's just a letter from a person at a particular time. Who wasn't looking for what you were showing them, right? You you can't you can't take those so personally, right? Right. right? I mean you there might be some good advice, there might be some something that you makes you think about doing something else, but you know, it, it's not a personal attack. And right. it, it took me a long time to learn that lesson. Yeah. yeah. Right.
2: And we've all gotten them. I mean, it took me mm-hmm. years, you know, to get into the Eddie Adams workshop. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I've there's no shortage of rejection yeah. letter stories out there. I think there's yeah. even Facebook groups where you can post yeah. your rejection letters. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if anything starts with thank you for applying, I'm right. like, I don't even want to open it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah. But yeah. take those and, and uh, be motivated to do better and, and to improve and, and mm-hmm. um, your time will come. And one thing I forgot to mention and want to say real quick is that each of the states do have an arts commission. So there's right. this um support that can come from from those organizations too which, and I'm thankful for Mississippi for having one as well.
0: Yeah. Just recently you, your Delta Hill Riders uh, appeared in the Prince Space in London uh and to also Cleveland in your hometown Delta Arts <laughs> Alliance and uh Half King photo series like, like you mentioned earlier and and th- this work has gotten around uh, and it was shared with on Smithsonian shared. So you know what I want to say we're having this conversation uh, about, you know, race and, you know, a white person photographing African-American cowboys and all that. And, you know, we're three people who are either white or past or white most of the time and, and all. And so, you know, take, take that conversation for, for what it's worth, but you've also been out in the world with this work and have gotten feedback and have gotten some validation and, and right. This work is out there, right. And this work has, has been successful.
3: Yeah. It's, uh, it's really, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm struggling to find the adjective, you know, two years ago, I wouldn't have imagined even the opportunity just because I was predominantly working at the university and then freelancing for really small assignments. And, and now I'm able to share a story in a small part of America on a large scale. And that's not, you know, me per se, that's the story of this culture that's been so overlooked. And it's, I feel really thankful that, you know, I've been accepted and been able to photograph it, but on a larger scale People are able to talk about this topic, and and not just in Mississippi, but but beyond.
2: And also, I think even you know, who knows down the road, there might be a photographer from that community that emerges, and Rory can, you know, facilitate those connections as well.
0: Oh no, I mean, this is all part of um, building up what you have, so then you can start offering to other people, right? It's like
3: what you're doing with everyday trail markers, yeah, for
2: other for other people yeah. yeah i mean
3: that was a, a a big discussion i had actually one of my reviewers yesterday was sarah lean from nat geo and, and her first thing was like you know you're going to have to answer for to be you know being a white cowboy on a, and i'm oh, sorry being a white <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm a cowboy too now i joke that i've been reborn as a cowboy so um i'm uh, being a white photographer photographing black cowboys you know what i meant right, right. um and sarah said you know you're going to have to answer to that. And that's one thing I've been conscious of from day one. And, and we both agreed that like, like the biggest thing that, that's lacking right now in my project is for an opportunity for them to benefit from the work as well. Right. And, and right. the way to do that is to involve them. And so I, I have to begin um, brainstorming how to get them more involved and have yeah. them be a part of the story as much as possible. Let them have some ownership of it. Um, And one thing I I should mention, I recently received a grant from an organization called Taking Focus, and the grant is uh, specifically designed so that a portion of the grant goes directly back to the people in the photography project. Ah. And so my pitch for the grant was that I would have that portion of funding go directly to the way I pitched it was five cowboys or cowgirls would go to the local school system, They they would be dressed in their clothes, and they'd bring their horse, and then they would have an opportunity to speak with the students to talk about them personally as a cowboy or cowgirl and then talk about the bigger picture of black cowboy history. The students would then get the homework assignment of finding out if their family also has a connection to this culture. They would then turn in that homework and then I actually get you know to benefit from that as well because then I can find more people yeah. that I could go out and interview and also more people that I can get a better understanding of the history of this.
0: Yeah, and you can... That at a certain point, like, like I was saying before, once you build up a certain um, level of accomplishment and then you can invite other photographers, other journalists, right? Uh, yeah. To also represent the story you're doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I really, I think, you know, that's the sort of the best thing you do once you have some successes and once you have a platform is starting inviting other people in. Exactly. You know?
2: Right. Yeah. it's like, and I know you've talked about traveling or, or freelancing and potentially traveling but I do always hope that those photographers and journalists do stay there and that we mm. can find a way everyday rural or otherwise to keep them there because so many young or emerging journalists, photojournalists do flock to New York and DC for jobs. And it's just like, well, there's nothing, you know, looking around at the local news situation going on now and, and, you know, hoping that we can facilitate a, a conversation, a media conversation, to start to build a way to have people remain in those areas and continue to cover and represent those stories as well, yeah. um, and hopefully expand that network rather than <laughs> than let it yeah. slowly die. It, but it
0: just makes all the sense in the world. I mean, we're we're all on we're using some form of electronic media now that doesn't need a home base, right? There should right. be a way to to reach out to people and, and, you know, I, and it's happening, def- obviously it's happening. And I, I was, I mentioned earlier before we started recording that, you know, I had Katie Sadie on uh, as a guest and she's, she came down from Canada for portfolio reviews. And, uh, she, you know, now she's sort of in one sp- in place in Canada. She's their Canadian go-to person. Right. And that, yeah. th- that's ideal. That's right. the ideal situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The well, money is here and the, the job offers are here, but let's spread them around. Yeah.
3: So if you need a, a journal, photojournalist in Mississippi who's also a cowboy now. Yeah, you, know,
0: that's
2: right. you, you know, you know, you <laughs> know, self-identified,
0: self-proclaimed cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you fit that. Uh, yeah, idea. perfectly.
2: <laughs>
0: so nice. You know, I I didn't ask, her or I went to ask him. What does um What does Marisol do? Um,
3: she actually, she's always had a background in food. So oh. when we moved there, she helped open this really cool. Uh, I guess you could summarize it as a college bar, but also a restaurant. And then she, after that, opened, guess, remote Mississippi's version of Chipotle, but mom, mom and pop version, owned by the same family from the first restaurant, a version that
0: won't give you a gastrointestinal <laughs> yeah, disorder. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh wait, am I allowed to say that? Oh, anyway, it's they're, true. A sp- they're a sponsor. <laughs> plenty of evidence out there.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Here goes the Chipotle sponsorship. That's right. Um, <laughs>
3: Um, so, yeah, she's always been involved in restaurants. Um, she's actually full-time. She's actually a receptionist for a chiropractor. But get this, and she'll be embarrassed that I'm bringing this up. But you guys will love this because you're in New York. <laughs> but in the Mississippi Delta, there are many people who have never had a fresh bagel in their life. I can believe it. And yeah. <laughs> and Marisol, grown up in Mexico, probably never had like a legitimate fresh bagel in her childhood partnered with a great friend of ours who moved to Mississippi because her husband teaches at the university. Her name is Kate Gluckman. And um, so Marisol and Kate are the two only fresh bagel makers (laughs) in Mississippi right. <laughs> It's
2: funny, you brought up the bagel thing earlier in Georgia, and I almost said it, but I didn't want to derail. I was That's like, right. speaking of, actually, they're bringing bagels to the South. Wow. Yeah. Good
0: for them. Yeah. Yes. So
3: this is really interesting,
0: like, collision of cultures happening right. in well, rural bagels Mississippi. Bagels can come to Mississippi, so can good journalism jobs. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That's proof. What, what were you doing in Arizona when you met your future wife? So
3: I went out to Arizona um, after got uh, getting back from New Zealand and I actually didn't finish school right away. I, I took that semester abroad and was like, I had one semester to go and this was before taking Jerry's class. So I was at that point a little bit older than everyone else who was graduating when I eventually went back to school. But I took over a year off and didn't want to live in Maine or in New England anymore. So I just went as far away as I could in America and, and Arizona had a job opportunity a non-profit organization for um, underprivileged teenagers yeah. and so I was out there and I didn't actually have that job for very long but at that point I met Marisol and when we met she was my first introduction to, to Mexico. I mm. had never been to Mexico and, and we actually went down there together and on and off would stay there for longer periods of time living there kind of casually and then coming back and forth to Arizona and I fell in love with the southwest but, but even more so with Mexico.
0: I was going to say, even yeah. more so with Marisol.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, and with Marisol. Don't leave her out of the equation.
0: Yeah. Oh, so uh, did we miss anything? Nicole, did you have any uh, last thoughts or questions?
2: Are there any photo programs or journalism programs that come to mind, either in Mississippi or the Southeast, that you'd recommend? I know we mentioned slow exposures. So you know. there's
3: a program at Duke. Of course, there's SCAD so, in, in Savannah, that has a great art program, art school. I'm trying to think, so Mississippi has a journalism program at the University of Mississippi, Old Miss, and I haven't taken any courses there, but they also have a Southern Studies program there, which I neglected to mention earlier, and there's a lot of great people involved with that, including um, Will Ferris, who's done a lot of documentary work in the South, Bill Ferris. Mm-hmm. So there are definitely opportunities out there. Southern University of um, Southern Mississippi has a great reputation for photojournalism program. And a lot of people have come out of that program. Of course, I've never actually been formally trained in um, in that realm. So I, I've always actually been curious. to I, w- I would enjoy to go back to school and, and do that full time as a photo J student, because there's so much value in, in learning from your peers and professors. But while we may be on a much smaller scale than and um, don't have as many prestigious universities in the South, I've I've also kind of learned through my personal experience that if you put the time and effort into uh, a particular career that you're really passionate about, no matter where your program is, if you're putting in more than that than what's asked of you, you're you're going to you're going to grow. You're going to develop your skills, and so don't let your geographic location limit your ability to, um, to chase the career path that, that you want to.
0: Yeah, well, that's a nice note to end on. Thanks for coming in. Thank yeah. you. Thanks so much for having me yeah. all the way from Mississippi. Yeah, are you heading back tomorrow? or?
3: I'm going to D.C. tomorrow to hopefully uh, have some more FaceTime with, um, with editors down there.
0: Nice. All right. And thanks, Nicole, for uh, coming in.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Introducing <laughs> us, yes. All right, bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. <laughs>